Amen. Amen. Thank you for that praise, team. We appreciate that. You're never going to let me go. I hope you feel that in your spirit. That's a beautiful, beautiful thought. You're never going to let me go. We sang it enough, repeated it so many times. It should lock into your heart. You're never going to let me go. That's good. All right, if you will, take your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32. If you have your Bible here today, Deuteronomy chapter 32. While you're finding your place in the Bible, let me remind you just a couple of things. One, uh, I think it's wonderful that Roe v. Wade for 50 years held sway in our country, and it's been overturned. Isn't that wonderful? When righteousness rules, the Bible says the righteous rejoice, but when wickedness rules, the people grieve or groan. That is so true, and there's just a time of rejoicing today. I know every uh, state has to determine at their level, level, but the nice thing about that is you vote those in at that level. And so it's a wonderful opportunity for us to even continue to pray for that and enjoy that small victory uh, for our country, and um, I'm just grateful about that. Uh, let me mention a couple other things. Remember to pray for that team that left for Spain. Uh, Jason's been heading up that team, and uh, he's taking Kyle along. Kyle's taking a group of eight to one church, and Jason's taking them to the other church, which are two missionaries. are two different locations, and then they're switching midweek to minister there, VBS, outreach, and some types of, uh, I think, labor on the facility as well. So remember them. Don't forget them. Let me mention this too. We just got these pictures recently. Let me show you the first one. This is uh, about six months ago. We gave over $20,000 toward two church plants in two little towns that I can't say the name of outside in northern India. And it's just Bedali or something was one of them. But they got women and men working on this project. I've never, and, and it's unbelievable how they do their work. I mean, most of it's by physical labor. There's just not the machinery that you and I would have today. But here's one of the first church plants going up that we put $10,000 in. They've already got a group of people that are saved and need a place to worship. And now they're building another one. Go, there's the next page, and you go to the last one on the next slide there. And you can just kind of see... Uh, the effects that your money has been invested into, and I'm just excited to be able to share those with you today, so I thought you'd enjoy seeing those if you gave to that, and just um, how precious that is to us, that these place, people have now have a place to actually put themselves under a shelter and be able to worship together as the people of God. Uh, okay, if you would, stand with me now. We're going to read uh, Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 to 12. Deuteronomy 32, I've entitled this message, A Big, Big House, A Big, Big House, 32, verse 7, remember the days of old, consider the years of all generations, ask your father and he will inform you, your elders and they will tell you, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance, he found him in a desert land, and in a howling waste of wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign God with him. You may be seated. In a couple weeks, I'm going to start a series on the book of Mark, and uh, I'm not going to do that series today, but I am going to do some background material that I would like to teach you from the Bible to give you a better perspective of what really is going on in the book of Mark. It kind of leads to the book of Mark, because the book of Mark starts out in a wilderness. And uh, 
that's how you want to see the book of Mark beginning to flow in its purpose and intent. And so I started studying that phrase wilderness and then got even further into that, got some more background material. And so I got a message out of it and then I'll begin Mark in a couple weeks and we'll uh, come to that study. But today this study doesn't really have any correlation to that, just the background material that I found. Now, I, I find it fascinating to me. The Bible is an amazing book. Here it is, it's a collection of all these incredible stories. But it is really a collection of all these stories put together into one story. And, and you would know that as you read the Bible, that God starts out with this universe and this earth that he created, and then he chooses human partners to be a part of his effort to build his universe. But they sin, and they bring the whole world into chaos, and then there's this descent into sin. And so God determined at that point he would have to redeem them. This has been the story since the beginning of time. And amazingly, he still wants to use human partners to redeem him. And he's going to take those human partners and he's going to empower them with his spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then he's going to direct them through the word of God. This is going to be their sole source of direction. And then from that, he is going to connect them to a faithful group of people that will say, God will gather together and we will be your people. And so really, that was God's plan since the beginning of time. Now, after the destruction of the world by a flood in the Old Testament, God had to restart his program. So he restarts his program, and when he begins, he actually begins here in Deuteronomy 32, and it says there, I want you to see this, in a desert, verse 10. He found him, who's him? Israel, in a desert land and in a howling waste of a wilderness. Now, you may not pick up on that as you read your Bible, but really, it went from a beautiful paradise to a wilderness to a desert. And in the desert, God said, I'm going to go into that desert, and I'm going to pick out two people, Abraham and Sarah, and I'm going to start a program to redeem people through Abraham and Sarah. So um, this is an incredible kind of thing, and I'm going to do it in a desolate place, a vast and terrible wasteland, the Bible says. So he reaches out to these two people in the middle of a desert. Now, I've been to this desert. It's south of the Dead Sea. It's in a place called the Negev, um, and it's very barren, and it's a place you would never want to live. And so I want to show you a picture of the Negev today. Now, you might would see that and say, that's absolutely beautiful. It is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful from sitting on an air-conditioned bus, all right? The minute you get off the bus... And you sit out there, and he starts to lecture to you as an Arab guide in this particular situation, because you, the Jewish people can't get into some of these areas, so you need to take an Arab guide. And so uh, he begins to lecture, and you're sitting out there in 90-degree temperature, dry, humid wasteland, and all you're thinking about is, I hope that air conditioner doesn't quit on that bus. That's the thought that was running through my man, mind. It's, it's hot. It's a wasteland. Not much grows there, but this is where Abraham started with God. Now, keep that in your mind, okay? He starts there in this, in this barren land. Uh, you can show the next picture just so you can see how terrible it is. You're going to see it, and you're like, well, that's absolutely beautiful, but it's, it's really uh, a difficult, it'd be a very difficult place to live. But this is where he's raised, and this is where God uses him. Now, in those days, and this is an amazing thing, they lived in communes. They called them Bedouin clans. They were nomads. They were Bedouins. So Abraham and Sarah were Bedouins. 
And they lived in these communes together with about 80 to 100 people. And while they were there, you would have one leader over them, and they, he would be called the patriarch. The patriarch, that's the term we use. That's probably not the correct term that they would use, but that's the way we understand it. So I wanted to show you how it would look. They'd have this one big tent, and then they would have 30 to 40 tents around it. And here's the amazing thing. The only way we could get into this Bedouin community is we had to have an Arab take us in because you can't get into them otherwise because they don't let you. But we were on this, uh, I was doing some archaeological digs, working on my doctorate, and this was one of the places we got to go, which is absolutely fascinating to me. And so you have one big tent, which would have been like Abraham. These people live, Abraham was 4,000 years ago. They're living the exact same way Abraham lived 4,000 years ago. Abraham would be the patriarch, he'd be in the biggest tent, and then you'd have 30 to 40 tents around you, and they would be your commune, or the Bedouin clan is how you would know it. And uh, uh, here's what, let me show you another picture. Here's an inside of one. You usually don't get a picture of inside, but they let us take a picture. Did you already show? Okay, there's the inside. This is how they lived their life. Now, Abraham and Lot sat around and played checkers most of the time. I mean, what do you do in the desert? I mean, it's literally, think about that. It is the last place in the world I would want to live. And I would say no thank you to this community. But this is how Abraham lived, and this is how many of the Bedouins and nomads live today. Now, what do they do? They slept there, they ate there, they make, their, they make clothes, they make pottery, they cook, they raise sheep, they raise goats, they raise cattle, they raise camel. I don't know how they survive out there, but they do. And uh, it would be a very difficult place. Now, I want you to have that picture in your mind, because as I develop this sermon, that's the way I want you to think. And so the central idea of a patriarchal society like this, about 80 to 100 people, the central idea is to redeem. Now, you think of that in terms of a theological concept, God going to a cross and redeeming us for our sin. That's part of it, but that's not really the origin of it. Before it ever became a religious term, it has a deeper term, and that's what I wanted to explain to you today. For example, in Exodus, God says, I will redeem you out of Egypt with my mighty arm. Isaiah, say to the people, do not fear, I have redeemed you. Zechariah, praise be the Lord of God of Israel, for he has come to redeem his people. Okay? Now, you think redemption in terms of salvation, but it's a, it's a broader term, and that's what I want to explain to you today. Okay? It's a patriarchal idea. Now, Here's how it works, okay? I think the best way to explain it. Let's take, for example, just this section of people right here, okay? This would be the size of a clan, a Bedouin clan. And uh, in that Bedouin clan, let's just say, for example, I'll be the patriarch. I'm the head of the whole clan right here. Jeff, good to see you, man. Coming in from Colorado for the weekend? Great. Haven't seen you in a long time. Let's do lunch sometime. Okay, but anyways... Um, uh, so let's say this clan would be in my jurisdiction over him, and I have these tents, and we live out in the Negev, and we're raising cattle and sheep and goats and camels. And so as the patriarch, we would think in terms of the term is literally in their culture, the father's household, the father's household. And the oldest born son would be the patriarch. Okay, so in this case, if I was, and I am the oldest firstborn son, 
So in this case, as a patriarch, I would run the commune. I would be over the commune, and everybody would be responsible to me. Now, uh, who would be my people in my commune? First of all, it would be my sons and my daughters and their children. So I'd have grandchildren. I have sons and daughters. Some of you would be that in the commune. And then some of you might be my sisters or brothers that wanted to hang out with our patriarchal community rather than go into another and start your own patriarchal community because you can see how hard it would be to live in the desert like that. And so a lot of times they stuck together and it would be like a clan. It'd be clannish or a Bedouin clan that would gather together. And so the truth of the matter is um, as, you, as you work and serve in this clan, all of us are together under one umbrella of how we'd function. My responsibility as the patriarch to this community would be, I've got to take care of all your needs, whatever they are. I'm responsible for every one of you because I'm the patriarch. I'm the patriarch. Now, here's the deal is the one catch is whatever resources come into the clan, it's all mine. It's all mine. All the money, they didn't have money. All the sheep, all the goats, all the pottery, everything that was in there, I am the owner of it all. It all comes to me because I'm the patriarch. That's how it works in that society. Now, in that society, um, the truth of the matter is, that is my job to make sure all of your needs are met and you are protected, fed, clothed, housed, as comfortable as possible. And as best as I can provide, I'm going to try to keep you as comfortable as possible because that's my job. My job is to take care of every one of you. Now, if one of you gets marginalized, they have this happen in Bedouin communities today. Somebody comes in and steals somebody, and they take them away 50, 60 miles away, and they make them a slave. If you get marginalized in that community and you get captured by the enemy uh, or you uh, get hurt or injured, it is my responsibility to go out there and find you and bring you back into the household into the father's household. That term father's household is the term we use in the English patriarch, but it really is the translation in Hebrew, father's household. I'm responsible to bring you back into my father's household, my household, as your father, whatever your relationship is to me. And I have to use every expense possible because that's my job to bring you back into the household, the father's house. We call it patriarch. And the word patriarch is more of a Latin term, and we don't follow this real well, but it means ancient father, ancient father. Now, that's the term that we use, ancient father, patriarch, but really the term they would have been the father of the household. Now, I don't really like the term to be called ancient father, so don't call me ancient father. I prefer Jedi master Obi-Wan Kenobi. Okay, that's my term I want you to use for this. Okay, I'm the Jedi master over this commune or this clan, all right? And so here's the, here's the deal. Um, my job is to do whatever it takes to bring you back if you get marginalized. These, these little communes and clans will grow up into little cities, and then what might happen is you have economic problems in that city, and you might lose your land and have to give it to someone else because you got into economic trouble. My responsibility is to go and find that land and buy it back for you because you're part of the father's household. I even have to do that for you. I have to take total care of you. And that's my responsibility as the patriarch of that home. Now, that's, that's an incredible responsibility as a patriarch, all right? I have to take whatever money I've got, whatever resources I've got, and I've got to take care of you. So here's the deal. 
The word redeem is to restore someone who's gone outside the household and do whatever it takes to bring them back in. That's what redeem means. That's, that's it in its original meaning before it ever meant going to a cross. Okay? I have to go restore someone who's gone outside of the household and do whatever it takes to bring them back in. Now, God says, I'm Israel's redeemer. I'm Israel's redeemer. They were alienated from the father's house. And God says, I'll do whatever it takes to restore you. Every one of you, I will do whatever it takes to bring you back into the household. I will redeem you. That's why the Bible says this over and over, and sometimes we miss it. We just think of Jesus and the cross, but that's not it. I will redeem you from trouble. That's in the Psalms. I will take you out of the pit. That's in the Psalms. I will, I will keep you from, I will redeem you from your enemies. That's in the Psalms. God's going to do whatever it takes to bring you back into the household. Why? Because God rescues his lost children. God rescues his lost children. He restores them to the father's house. Now, when the patriarch dies, everything goes over to the oldest son, the firstborn oldest son in the family. And the oldest son gets all of the resources of the patriarch, except a little bit is given to the rest of the kids. Now, try that at Christmas time with your kids. Give your oldest firstborn son 30 gifts and give everybody else one gift with some candy. You and your Western mindset would say, that's not fair. Because you're a Westerner, you're from America, and you would think that way because everything's about being fair in our, in our society. Not in the Mid-Eastern society. In the Middle Eastern, it's not about fairness. If they would have had a situation like that where they would have said, the oldest gets everything after dad dies, they would have danced and rejoiced. See, we're foreign to this. We're foreign to this. This doesn't make sense to us, but that's made sense to them because what they were thinking is, my oldest brother got it all. That's great because now he has to take care of me for the rest of my life. He's responsible for me no matter what happens to me, and, and that's his job, and I'm, I'm fine with that. He has to make sure I'm fed, I'm clothed, I'm sheltered. If I get captured, he has to come and get me. He has to do everything to bring me back in. Now, biblically, God is the patriarch, and the father's house is his family, his community. And he gave all his resources to the firstborn son, the oldest son. Now, you're thinking, that's Jesus. It's not Jesus. It was Israel. Exodus 6 says, Israel is my firstborn son. It's my firstborn son. And he told Israel, I will give you way more resources than anybody else. And if you study Jewish history and you study Israel as far as you can go back, you're going to find that they've been given more resources than any other place in the world. And not only given more resources, but they have minds beyond anyone else in the world. It's absolutely amazing just to study that. I'm not, I'm not getting into that part of it, but I want you to understand that God gave every resource to Israel. 
And he told Israel, I'll give you more than anyone else. You know why? Because I want you to go out, Israel, and I want you to bring my lost children in with all the nations. I want you to be my firstborn to go and bring the lost in back into my father's house. And they got all the blessing, not because God liked them more. Abraham and Sarah were not Jews when God found them. They were nobodies. So it's not that he liked the Jewish people more. That's not it at all. Or he played favorites with the Jewish people. No, you're missing the whole point. God picked them to say, you're my oldest son. And I'm going to start with you, Abraham and Sarah, and you're going to take care of everyone else, and you're going to bring them back into the Father's house. Now, the truth of the matter is, God chose Israel as his partner in redeeming the world. And sometimes they did a good job. And sometimes they did a terrible job. Sometimes they were so bad about it, they did everything they could to keep all the other children out. And they just separated themselves from everybody and wouldn't try to reach any nations. So sometimes they did good, and sometimes they did bad. So eventually God said, I'm going to have a second firstborn son. That's going to be Jesus. And I'm going to give him all the resources of the world, and I'm going to send him down to this earth, and he's going to have all my resources. The very Son of God is going to bring all lost children into the Father's house. And the first thing he did is he lived and he died to pay off our sin debt. That's why we use that word redeem. That's just the start of it. That's not everything. That's just the start. He said, I'm going to pay off your sin debt and then I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. There's going to be a place of many mansions for you. And what does that assume? That assumes that he's making a big, big family and he's going to need a big, big house to keep everyone in. And he said, so while I prepare a place for you, I'm going to trust you with all of my resources because I'm gone. I'm going to put my spirit in you, and I'm going to trust you with my resources to go out into this world and bring people back into my father's house. So your job in this evil, decaying world is to go look looking for the lost family members that are not yet in his house. Redeem them, first by the blood of Jesus Christ, but not just to go to heaven. No, no, that's, that's, that's important. You can't get to heaven without that. But the bigger purpose was, I want to build my family. I want a big, big family with a big, big house, just like you want. That's what God wants. Now, let me give you three illustrations of that in Scripture, okay? Number one is Lot. Lot was the nephew to Abraham, and he was a troubled, carnal, worldly kid. And he was a pain to Abraham. He was a pain to Abraham. And it got so bad, they had to split. And Abraham said, you pick this way, and whatever way you pick, I'll go the other way. And then he got himself down in the city of Sodom and lived an unrighteous, uh, stained life who was from Abraham's father's house, or from Abraham's house. And while he was down there, a major king came in and had a major war with the king of Sodom. It was like a world war at that time. And they went and they defeated the king of Sodom, and everybody in that community got taken back as prisoners, prisoners of war, and Lot was one of them. 
and his family was one of them. And so news got back to Abraham. And he said, your, your, your nephew has been captured. Now, did Abraham love him? Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But he knew he was responsible as the patriarch to go get that boy back. And so he, gets he raises up 318 mercenary soldiers, and he gets those 318 mercenary soldiers to sneak into the camp and, and to rout the enemy and defeat them and bring all the goods back and all the people back to the king of Sodom and then to restore Lot back to the father's house. And that's what he does. That's, that's what it means to redeem is I'm responsible for you, and I'm going to bring you back and rescue you from danger and get you back to this father's house. The second story is Ruth and Naomi. Naomi's husband is in a famine in Bethlehem, and so she, he sells his property due to the famine. He says, we're getting out of town. We're going down to Moab to get a job down there because they're making money down there, and there's no famine in that area. So he takes his wife and his two sons, and he goes into the land of Moab. That is literally the flesh pot or the rotting pot of the Middle East. It's like one of the worst places in the world to live as far as corruption and evil. And so while he's down there, the father dies and his two sons die. But you have to understand that from the tragedy of a patriarchal society because now... Naomi has no one. She has no connection. She has no way back. She doesn't even have the land to go back to Bethlehem. She's got nothing, nothing. And that, that's how you have to see this, okay? So your connection to family is patriarch, and now you've got no real family. You've got no connection. She's what we would call marginalized. That's why I use that term, marginalized. She's a widow. She would be considered like an orphan, like an unborn child, like an elderly person who's single, like a foreigner. She is outside family. And who in here wants to be outside family? See, you want to be connected to someone through your history that you can say we're family. That resonates deep within us as people. Okay, so she returns to Bethlehem with Ruth. Ruth comes along with her, and she has no property. She can't get it back. She's got nothing but a redeemer. God raises up a redeemer named Boaz. He falls in love with Ruth. They get married, but in order to get married, he has to pay this great sum of money to purchase back a property for Naomi. And he is willing to do it because he loves Ruth. And so he goes to great debt for himself, and he buys the property back for Naomi so she could have her homeland again. And then one day she knows, because they have a kid, and that grandkid of Naomi's will one day have that house, that property, and that land. It's a, it's a beautiful story, and, and the idea is that he would go to that great extent to redeem them. That's why it's the Redeemer chapter or the Redeemer story of the Bible. He redeems them back so they can come back and have a place. 
because we all want a place. And by the way, just so you know the end of that story then, Ruth is a Moabitess who her great-great-grandfather was Lot. See, because God's always going to get him back to the father's house. He's going to do whatever he has to. And he's, even though Lot was a wicked, uh, called-out one of the father's house, God still honored and through his line brought his people back to the house. It's incredible. Incredible. I don't have time to go in that direction, but anyways, I just want you to see that uh, bigger story. Let me give you the third story. The third story is the prophet Hosea. He lives in a town of about a thousand people. And God says, I want you to go down to the house of prostitution. And I want you to pick out one of the prostitutes and I want you to marry her. It's crazy. It's crazy. Pick her out and marry her. Why did he do that? Because that prostitute is marginalized. Who she got? She got no family. She got nobody. And so God says, I want you to bring her into the house. So he goes and he picks out Gomer. Gomer is how you say it in Hebrew, Gomer. Now, the neighbors would know all too well who she is. And Hosea, this righteous, holy guy, marries her. He's a prophet. But she's got a family now. She's got a husband. She bears him three children. She's in community. She's restored. She's been redeemed. This is the idea. This is the idea. She's redeemed. But what we discover in the story is she likes her old life better. She likes the old sin better than what she's got now. And she's not happy. So she goes back to her lovers on the street. And through the process of time and into the descent of sin, she ends up on a slave block being auctioned off where men would buy her to sell her to other men as a prostitute. God goes to Hosea and he says, Gomer, you know she's up for sale. Yeah, Lord, I know. She's at the bottom of the barrel. Yes, Lord, I know. I want you to go pay the debt. I want you to buy her back. I want you to redeem her. My wife, all she did to me, yes. So there he stands in front of the neighbors and everyone else, complete humiliation. He pays her debt. Who in their right mind would do that? God gave Hosea this incredible, I don't know how to describe it to you, this incredible passion again for his wife and this incredible pain with his wife. It's where passion and pain meet. And God gives it back to Hosea. And he struggles with that, but he has this incredible passion to get her back. You ripped my heart out, but, but I'm going to bring you back. And he buys back his wife because she can't stop cheating on him. I don't know anybody who do this. He pays the price to redeem her. He loves her to the degree of being helpless. He loves her to the degree of being helpless. Why? I'm glad you asked. For God so loved the world. He didn't just love the world. He so loved it to the point of helplessness. 
Because inside of God is this passion and this pain that he's experienced with every one of you. Passion and pain. And Jesus died to get us out, to redeem us. God had to get you out of a mess. God had to get you when you were disgraced or humiliated. He says, I still love you. That's love's dilemma. That's love's dilemma. When passion meets pain, and if you love anybody, you know both. See, we think of Calvary as being a place of pain, but really it's a place of passion. It's a place of passion. He was beaten so you could sleep at night. He was bruised so you could laugh again. He bore your sorrows. You know what the word sorrows is in Isaiah 53? It's depression. He bore your depression so you didn't have to be depressed. Why are you depressed? He bore your depression. He wanted to give you a skip in your step. He wanted you to smile again. He wanted you to see life fully. That's, that's why he died. All those reasons are behind redemption. So the next time you see a cross, you should see the lover, the lover. Next time you see the blood, you should see the price that was paid to redeem you. That's, that's the whole point of it. And, and this is what I want to say to you, okay? That's what God is up to. He was up to it in your life, and he wants to be up to it in other people's lives. Now, you can look at the world out there, and you can look at that world and say they're pagans, they're unbelievers, they're wicked, and the things they're doing now are wicked, and uh, you can be apathetic to them. It's very easy to do that. But I'm telling you, God thinks of them as children. He sees them as children. And those people who riot, he sees them in trouble. They're in trouble. In fact, his son would be willing to die and shame himself and humiliate himself like Gomer to get him back. Now, that's how much God feels toward us. And God turns to us as his family, and here's what he's asking us. Will you help me? Will you help me? Because it's so easy in life to get so caught up in everything you've got to do and everything that's on your heart and everything that's on your mind to just step back and say, why am I here? Am I just trying to knock it out in life and get through and make money and have enough in retirement and all those things? Or is there something deeper going on that I'm going to be part of a whole bigger plan that's been going on for 4,000 years to get people into the Father's house. To get them into the Father's house. That's what God's up to, and that's what he's asking us. He wants to restore people to the Father's house. Ooh, well, I just gave you some examples. The foreigner, he wants you after the foreigner here. As much as we're defensive or cared for or guarded around the foreigner, he says, I want you to get him. I want you to get the foreigner. I want you to get the widow. I want you to get the orphan. I want you to get the child of the single parent. I want you to get the imprisoned. I want you to get whoever is marginalized, whoever's hurting, whoever's away from me. I want you to get them back. I want you to get your neighbors. Now, that's a hard one. That's a hard one to get your neighbors. 
Because I think sometimes we see this big task before us. I got to get all my neighbors. Listen, just take baby steps with that, okay? Let me just give you some practical advice, and I'm going to give you a story in close. Just some practical advice for you right now is, is do three things with the neighbors that live around you. Just take three of them and learn their names. I want to tell you something. Mission starts with just learning people's names. And don't say, hey, man, how you doing? Say, hey, Todd. Say, hey, Rodney. Know the people. Just three of them. Just get three names, learn them, and invest in them. That's the first thing I want to tell you. Invest in just three people. Maybe three couples or do something. And then as you invest in them, say, how can I make touch points in their life? What could I do? Could I have them come over for a TV show? Could I, could I have them for dinner? Could I take something to them? What could I do to invest? Because my mind and my heart has got so focused on my life that sometimes we get pulled away from our very goal of getting people to the Father's house. And so I'm just reminding you of that today. Invest in some people. Now, just baby steps. Three. Start praying over them. I've done that this week. I've been burdened again for some people in my neighborhood. Uh, knowing their names, investing in them. And then after you invest in them, after you get to know them, build trust with them and all the things that come along with that, invite. Just invite them. Invite them to a church service so they can see how saved people act when they come together. How saved people are when they come to this church. Just invite them to come. That's, that's, that's so simple, but just invest. I want to keep it baby steps, okay? Invest, invite, and then after they experience church, at some point in the relationship, introduce. Introduce them to Jesus Christ. That's it. It's getting them back to the Father's house. That's how I've seen people on my street saved. That's how I've seen some join the church. Because it's just simple things. I, I can't do the whole neighborhood. I can't get everywhere. But there are some basic things I can do. I take some baby steps and I can invite. I can invest, invite, and introduce. Now, I use the good news, bad news. I don't know what your system of sharing your faith is. But whatever it is, use that. Whatever your testimony is, that's one of your most powerful things, is your testimony, how you came to faith in Christ. I'm just calling you back to what God is asking us to do. So just, just remember that, okay? Will you help me? Now, I'm going to tell you this story. I'm going to close. Okay, I've gone a little over here. I didn't want to go this long, but... Okay, there's a little girl in our church, 14 years of age. Her name is Brooke, Brooke Alford. Mom and Dad, uh, uh, Jenny and Rodney. I was with their uncle the other day, and he was telling me about a time that he went over to see uh, Brooke. Brooke is mentally impaired, and uh, she's in this soccer league of mentally impaired kids. And so they were playing soccer, and he's telling me this story, and I just love the story. It'll make you laugh when you hear it, but it'll make you cry at the same time. And so they're playing against this opposing team, and the opposing team comes down to, this, to, their, to their goal, and they score uh, a shot in the goal with the soccer ball. And all of a sudden, the opposing team starts high-fiving each other. They're all excited. Everybody's high-fiving. Well, Brooke thinks this is great. She goes over to the opposing team, and she starts high-fiving everybody and saying, way to go, man. That was a great shot. And she's just into it. And I laughed when I heard that, but, I, but, it, but something in my heart was touched by that. It's just so foreign. I've often wondered why God makes people like that. Physically handicapped or mentally impaired. 
And I happen to wonder sometimes if maybe they're not so concerned about the winning so that we wouldn't be so concerned about all the things that stress us out. And we could actually celebrate someone else's life. Because I'm about winning, man. I'm about competing. So I was reading the story of the Seattle Special Olympics. And this is what caught me. Is they had nine mentally and physically handicapped kids running in this 100-yard dash. And when they let the gun go off, these kids started taking off. Some were physically impaired, some mentally impaired, and it didn't look like a dash at all, but with all the relish they could, they were going to get across that 100-yard line. They start running up the 100-yard line, and while they're running up about 20 yards in, one little boy, he trips and he falls and he tumbles and rolls on the AstroTurf. And he lets out a yell and he starts crying. Well, all eight of the other kids stop and slow down and they turn around and they see him crying back there at the, back at the 20-yard area. And they all get quiet and they stop running and they go back to this little kid who fell and one of the Downs kids goes up and says, here, let me kiss your knee. That'll make you feel better. They get the boy up off the ground. He stops crying. And then they all lock arms. All nine of them. And they briskly walk together across the 100-yard line, all nine of them, arm in arm. I know that does something in your spirit because it does something in mine. Now everybody gave them a standing ovation for like several minutes, and they still talk about it to this day. You know, sometimes in our life, we're always about winning. But sometimes you do realize sometimes in life, it's not about you winning, it's about helping others win. And I'm not just talking at that level. I'm talking at a bigger level now for you, okay? I'm saying sometimes we've got to get the eyes off of all the things we're consumed by and say, how can we get these people into the Father's house? How are we going to do it? That's what I want you to do, and I just want you to answer that question in your heart. When Jesus asks, will you help me? Because that's the bigger picture of why you're here. Let's pray. Every head bowed, eyes closed. I'm just asking you to search your heart. Take baby steps. That's good. Mission starts with learning people's names. Investing in them. Building relationship. Because you've got a deeper calling in your life. Not just to sustain your family, get a retirement, enjoy your vacations. Those are fine. Those are fine. But to invest, invite, introduce. Help someone else win. Help someone else win. Get him to the Father's house. 
Father, I just speak over these people that their hearts are tendered. I know by that story, but mostly by your word, that you're calling us to a bigger purpose. It gets us beyond all of our cares. Lord, I just pray you empower us. Give us a vision for that. Give us a vision. We're so grateful that we're in the Father's house, and now we want to have a passion to get others here as well. So I lay it before you, Father. I ask your, your strength over these, their commitment. Just begin to work and do small things, small prayers, small names, small ways to make that difference. I pray you use it for your glory and honor. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. I'm going to have the praise team sing. Very common song. It fit with my sermon. Let's enjoy it and sing it together.